Okay, well, thank you all for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore for our special event with Dr. Regina Macedo. Um, just before we start, just a word about parking. We have free parking for all bookstore events um, behind Rasmussen Hall and next to the Wells Fargo Sports Center and in front of the bookstore, um, the South Lot. We have some refreshments on the table. You're welcome to take whatever you like. Um, if by mistake you get a ticket, just see me. I'm Rachel here at the bookstore, and I'll take care of it. Okay. Okay, our event. Our event is with Dr. Regina Macedo, who presents avian sexual selection and cooperative breeding. Regina Macedo discusses her research concerning avian sexual selections, cooperative breeding, and survival adaptation in the neotropics. Communal breeding and tropical guira, guira uh, cuckoos and their social system will be highlighted. Um, Dr. Regina Macedo is on faculty at Department of Zoology at the University of Brasilia, Brazil. She is co-editor of the book, Sexual Selection, Perspectives and Models from the Neotropics, um, published 2014, and is current president of the Animal Behavior Society. So Regina, could you say much more about yourself and also maybe a bit about the Animal Behavior Society that is having its conference in Anchorage? This event is being recorded and will be on iTunes or iTunes U tomorrow. Um, and or the UAA, you can search UAA and find it. And um, tell your friends who couldn't make it. So thank you all for coming. and. Um, Please join me in welcoming Regina Macedo. If you'd like to walk with us, you can too. Uh, yep. Whenever you feel more comfortable. Okay. okay. And I'm going to get Yeah, I was thinking. Okay. Um, Actually, I won't walk too far with this thing, so maybe I should just leave it here. Um, thank you f very much for being here. Um, if you have other questions about my own research, I could obviously all always answer later on. I am Brazilian, in case you wonder, people always ask, yes, I am Brazilian, and I do live and work in Brazil. Um, the Animal Behavior Society is uh, a society whose um, members do obviously work with uh, behavior and in the interface of many other areas, actually. And the meeting is going, it starts on Wednesday, it starts actually tomorrow evening with the reception, and goes until Sunday. And if you're interested in coming in, I'm sure they can accommodate uh, people to come in at the last minute. And it's a really fantastic meeting, bringing people from all over the U.S. and also from uh, many other places in the world. So, okay. Um, so today, what I'm gonna, what I wanted to do is to talk to you about some of the facets of my work with uh, behavior, which has mostly to do with the evolution of cooperative breeding, or had for a few years in the past, and then I've sort of changed focus for a while, and I've also been working um, with mating systems and breeding behavior. And I wanted to highlight and use a few species to uh, make some of the points of what we've been doing lately. So when people think about uh, the tropics in general, or they think about Brazil in particular, this is probably the type of image that comes to mind most often. So, <laughs> you know, people engaged in sort of uh, gaudy behavior with lots of uh, colorful ornaments and being very vocal and very loud. Not close to anything what I'm doing right now, but I hope you didn't expect that. But anyway, this is not so dissimilar from what people expect when they think about uh, birds in the tropics or in Brazil in particular, where um, birds are seen as probably being very conspicuous, having uh, sometimes odd behaviors and exhibiting very colorful plumage and ornaments such as the ones that I, uh, I'm showing here. It's not, well, it's not, you know, the images aren't all that wonderful as they are in my computer right here, but you know how beautiful these birds are. But 
Um, I wanted to specifically talk about three of the species that we've worked on. There are many other species, and not only birds that we work on in my lab, but I've, I've picked these three species because they're on different points of a spectrum in terms of social cohesion, degrees of social cohesion. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about one species that we worked on many, many years, um, the Greer cuckoo, and it's in the family Cuculidae. And if you know uh, something about birds, you'll know that this family has really, really wacky behavior in terms of breeding. So they're usually they're uh, brood parasites, and they do other uh, strange behaviors. And the Greer cuckoo is one of these birds that also engages in some strange behaviors in some ways. And the Greer cuckoo is an obligate um, uh, cooperative breeder, meaning you will not find this bird at least anywhere where we've studied it where it breeds by itself, like a, in a pair. So it is always in a group, and it engages in breeding behavior as a group. So that's why we call it an obligate cooperative breeder. The other species that I wanted to focus a little bit of time on is uh, the campo flicker, which is a, a woodpecker in the family Pisidae. And it is a facultative cooperative breeder, meaning that uh, what we've seen in Brazil, though I think in other places like in Argentina, I've heard that it's never cooperative in Argentina. But in Brazil, you can find pairs breeding together, as you'd normally expect birds to be doing. But you also find them as groups, and so that's why we call them facultative cooperative breeders. And finally, this is um, the jewel in the crown for me. Uh, lately, I've always uh, liked this little bird, but in the last <laughs> 10 years, I've become really engaged in, in working with this small bird. It's a blue-black grassquit. It's in the family Emberizidae, and it's non-cooperative. So it's in the other extreme of this uh, spectrum. It's non-cooperative, meaning that it will uh, breed in pairs in their own little territories, but it is very gregarious, which is why I still place it within this spectrum, because it is often found in groups, often, well, almost always, it's within groups, but it doesn't breed in a cooperative way. So um, my work is all done, obviously, in Brazil within an area uh, around the city that I live in, Brasilia, which is a savanna region, very arid in some parts of the year, and then it has a rainy season. And a few years ago, a uh, decade, a few years ago, like more like a decade or so, uh, this is what the region looked like. Um, uh, savanna habitat and where our work is conducted, but now it's a really patchy urbanized uh, from the same perspective there from that point. So let's look then at the Greer cuckoo. Um, this is a typical nest where you'd find it's a very large bulky nest. They lay several eggs and these eggs are laid by different females within the group. So you know that's why it's a communal breed. They lay eggs communally in a joint nest. And they're always seen like this in groups, and there they are perched, all sunning themselves. And so you'd ask, what's so cool about Guirhukus? Um, <laughs> this is uh, this individual over here, the Guirhukus, not the little girl. <laughs> the little girl's my daughter, some 20 years ago as well. So <laughs> we always kept a pair of these birds at home, the, the, my pet birds, I'd call them, but they were used as lure birds so I could attract territorial birds to capture them, so they were almost like pets. So what's so cool about these birds? Well, they have some very unique social behaviors, and as is typical with any animal that is social, they also have some very interesting antisocial behaviors, which I want to talk about. I've had a couple of really cool collaborators along the years with uh, this species and this study in particular, Hubert Schraubel, who is in Washington State University, um, and, and uh, Jeff Graves, who is in the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And for this uh, group of studies, which I'm only going to pick 
few angles to look at. I've also had several students who've worked uh, with me, and this is Carlos and Lara and Angela and Marina, Mariana and Marcos. So when we examine this model through the years, and although we've had many different questions, there were two underlying questions that we focused on. One of them was about what factors maintain communal breeding and why are these birds sticking to this uh, type of breeding? And the other one was what are the socio-ecological, uh, genetic and physiological mechanisms associated with the system? So we've tried to keep these two things in focus. And to answer many of the questions that have popped up over the years, we used a combination of field and lab methods. Um, for the field methods, basically once the rainy season was about to start, we'd start checking the nests or trees that look like they might have nests on them. And uh, this involved also checking old nests because they use the older nests, they refurbish them every time they nest. And as the tree grows, what they do is they, um, they disassemble the nest in a lower place and they take up the sticks to, to you know, create the nest again at a higher and higher points in the tree, usually in the crown of the tree. And what you see in this uh, figure, you can't really see it very, very well. Uh, Marcos is way up near the crown of the tree uh, as he goes and checks the nest. Um, we also checked then the eggs that were laid and eggs that were ejected. So we, and I'll talk about the egg ejection, which is one of the antisocial behaviors. But whether they be found on the ground or whether we set up nets below the, the nests to catch these eggs. We captured adults to band them and to weigh them, measure them, so on, and also to sample their bloods for genetic analyses. And we also checked and monitored the chicks, you know, when they hatched, whether they were still there, and we also sampled their blood. And then by the fourth or fifth day, we try to band them. So one other, um, one other type of analysis that I'll, I'll mention right now, and I'll, you'll see the results of this later on, is we wanted to find out who were the females in these groups that were laying the eggs. And to do that, we ended up developing together with Hubert Schrabel um, the analysis to determine egg maternity through protein electrophoresis using uh, uh, yolk samples because we weren't able to see when a female had laid their eggs, so we're in the ground, they fly into the nest, we don't know whether they've laid an egg or not. We couldn't just go up and down the tree all day long trying to find these eggs at the time that they were laid. There are other ways of getting um, maternity, but not easy either, but I'll explain later. And finally, we also wanted to do parentage analyses and find out who were the parents of each of the chicks. And so we sampled uh, blood from the chicks as well as they hatched to, to determine this uh, genetic identity of the chicks. Okay, so just a general life history information about uh, the bird as we found it. So they're always in groups, like I said, and the mean group size is about six individuals, though sometimes we could see without uh, one of the focal study groups, but we sometimes saw groups as large as 15 or 16 birds hanging out, but virtually never did we see a bird by itself. So usually group is about six individuals. Uh, most of their nesting attempts, uh, they use old nests, like I said, and the mean nest height is around eight meters, uh, but it ranges from very low to three meters to as much as 12 meters. I didn't like to climb that much, but um, we did it. <laughs> We can see the nest way up there. They seem to like the crown of the tree. And this is an Araucaria pine, which in the area where I live is not a typical savanna 
tree at all. It's an introduced ornamental tree from southern Brazil. But because it's so spiny, and even the trunks are covered with spines, I think that's why the birds like them, because of predators. And of course, we didn't like them, because exactly, they're covered with spines. And so, um, but they like these trees. And here is a nest with a clutch of, uh, it's a communal clutch of eggs, meaning these eggs uh, belong to several different females. So these communal clutches ranged from one to as many as 24 eggs, but the mean clutch size is about eight eggs. And uh, these clutches virtually never remained uh, intact. What happened to them is they were reduced through egg ejection. And the mean egg ejection per clutch was about 3.5 eggs. But in that one clutch of 24 eggs, for example, they ejected every single egg. And the way they do this is you'd come up, they'd lay an egg, the following day the egg was on the ground, and then you'd come up again, there's a second egg on the second day, the next day it's on the ground. So um, not social behavior, right? Anti-social behavior. So a few um, parameters here that are just basically uh, associated with each other. First, we find some positive uh, parameters, uh, some positive correlations with some of the reproductive parameters. So what you can see on the, on the first graph on the left-hand side, there is group size on the x-axis. And then uh, group size as it grows, so you'll find a growth in clutch size as well as an egg loss, which is pretty expected. As the clutch size grows, these birds also eject more eggs. And in terms of the eggs hatched and the young fledged, there's also that growth associated with group size. As more the group grows, the number of females is also higher, and so the number of eggs uh, and chicks that hatch eventually is also higher. However, not all is you know rosy cover, uh, colored in terms of uh, group size, because when group size grows, what we also see is uh, a decrease in per capita reproductive success. So meaning, that you know, even if we don't know, it's per capita, so it's spread across the group, but we do know that the number of chicks that actually uh, fledge decreases as group size increases. So obviously there are limitations to what a group size might produce in terms of you know, something positive for either the entire group or for a few birds. So one of the questions that I want to tell you a little bit about is one question that we had, we focused on for a period of time, which had to do with whether or not females can recognize their own eggs and chicks within this communal brood. And the reason why we asked this question was because in some species that are parasitized where uh, a, a parasite comes in and lays her egg in a, a another female's clutch, that female apparently can recognize the difference between her eggs and this outsider's eggs, and she will then eject these foreign eggs. And so we, uh, we figure that perhaps um, these guiacucus, where we have several females laying their eggs, if each female had her own set of characteristics tied to her own clutch, she would be able to recognize another female's eggs and eject those uh, foreign eggs, or what would be foreign to her own uh, um, clutch. So we asked whether egg traits could be used to determine maternity. And so we measured a series of these parameters, which included mass and length, the width, shape of the eggs, and the speckling pattern. Now, these eggs here, they're, it's very faded. They're bright turquoise blue. They're beautiful. They're like Easter eggs. And the speckling pattern is like a white uh, overlaid um, lace over the egg. It's just that incredibly beautiful. There's no description when you find one of these nests, when you come up over you know, the, the tree branches and you look, and there's this beautiful 
um, clutch of turquoise-colored eggs. It's just a wonderful thing. So how did we work with these um, to determine this maternity? So what I show here is the, the results of one uh, analysis for the egg, uh, egg yolk protein electrophoresis with a gel. And um, I, I won't be able to go around and show you this, but I'll just describe it. So this gel has all of these eggs. Each of these columns represents one of the eggs. And in the rows below, you'll find what uh, each uh, thing represents. So uh, the nesting bout is represented by the, the first row. And what you can see is the first seven eggs, each of these columns, belong to the first nesting bout of the group. So these groups can lay as many as five uh, clutches uh, through the, uh, the rainy season. So the first bout in this group, they had let's say one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, huh. six eggs, not seven. And then they had a third bout. So I'm not showing the second bout for this group, but they had a third bout where they had two eggs. Then the second um, row refers to the number of the eggs. So we'd number these eggs as they were laid. You'll notice that the first egg is missing, right? This egg is missing because these birds managed to throw the first egg away from the net. We set up the net and they managed to somehow throw it out. We found the shell on the ground, you know, but they're nasty. So they don't collaborate always. So we had the, that's why I was thinking of the, the seven eggs. Um, so they're numbered from two to seven and then the two eggs of the other uh, nesting bout, one and two. And then the day of laying. And you'll notice, for example, egg number two is laid on day one and then egg number three is a couple, uh, laid a couple of days later. And then on day five, we actually had two eggs laid, which immediately tells us these two eggs were laid by different females because a bird won't lay more than one egg per day. And then another day uh, with no laying and then single egg laid and then two more days and then egg number seven was laid on day nine. And then for the other nesting bout, you can see there's a three-day interval between the first egg and the second egg. Okay, so the last, uh, the last row there is what is really interesting is the identity of the female. And that identity is determined by the banding pattern that we uh, got, right? So we had for the first female, female A, who had the first, the two eggs, and then another female, female B, and then the last three eggs there, female C. Then you'll notice that on the last, um, the third nesting bout of the group, we had a female that had not laid any eggs before coming in, which is female D, and the same female that had laid three eggs in the other nesting bout also came in to lay one egg. So this technique um, allowed us to, to uh, sort of identify what was going on in these groups in terms of identity of the mothers, what was happening, and who was getting reproductive success. So this allowed us to sort of draw a map for the egg laying and uh, ejection patterns for each of the groups. And I show one example here of one nest. So in this nest, we had four females, which we designated A, B, C, and D. And you can see that, for example, female A, she laid her first egg on day one, and that egg was ejected, so that's a cross there. And then nothing happened on day two. So we'd, we'd know this only by being visiting the nest every day. And then we could sort of draw this pattern afterwards by knowing the identity of the eggs. Day two, nothing happened. On day three, she laid her second egg. And at the same time, female B came in and laid her first egg. But female B's egg was ejected. Then another day went by, nothing happened. And then on day five, both, a, uh, both female A and B laid uh, their eggs. And nothing happened to those eggs then a skip day, and then on day seven, female B laid a third egg, female A dropped out. And we also had female C who came in and laid one egg, and nobody tossed those eggs out. 
And finally, on day eight, we had female D coming in and laid one egg only, and that egg was ejected. So by drawing these sorts of maps, we could look at the eggs that survived for each female. So female A had two eggs, female B had two eggs, female C had one egg, and female D, nothing. So lost out. So once we had these mappings and we looked at the, the parameters of these eggs, the, the variables that describe these eggs, then we analyzed these and we determined the percentage of correct eggs assigned to the correct female by this, this yolk protein analysis, but through the egg parameters that we'd measured. And what we found is that there's a very low percentage of uh, correct eggs classified to their identified mothers. So uh, between 22 to 75 percent of the eggs were correctly classified with a mean of 44 percent. So we consider that very low, actually. So of all of the groups that we did this, we had only six of uh, those groups that had more than 50 percent of the eggs correctly classified. So what we concluded with uh, this aspect of the study, this question, is that the egg characteristics are not reliable in determining maternity for these communal clutches. And, um, you can look here and you can see, like, for example, these two eggs, though they look very uh, similar, at least to our human eyes and, and bird vision is, is close to human vision and, and colors and so on. Their eggs, uh, these two eggs, though they look very similar, they're laid by different females within the same group but in different laying bouts. And then when we look at two other eggs like these, um, they don't look very similar to me and yet they were laid by the same female in a single nesting bout. So obviously our initial hypothesis that perhaps females would be able to identify these eggs based on their characteristics, you know, isn't happening. And we came to the conclusion that maybe these characteristics that are so variable within the female clutches, they're one adaptation that females have of scrambling egg identity, in fact, which protects their clutches from each other. And if it weren't perhaps for this scrambling of these characteristics, we wouldn't be able to see cooptive breeding in this species. So these two things probably evolved together, the scrambling of egg identity together with the evolution of cooptive breeding. So cooperation exists. Um, they build their nests together. They incubate the eggs together. They defend the, the chicks together and so on. But there's a flip side to this, too, which we found through the years of study of the species. Um, and this is the flip side of cooperation. So I've told you about the egg ejection that is going on. So for the 1,500 eggs that we monitored over the years, we only had about 800 of them that stayed in the nest and were incubated. The rest of them either vanished or were ejected. And then of the eggs that stayed in the clutch and were eventually incubated by the birds, only about 400 of these eggs hatched. Uh, so even after incubation starts, there's still things going on, ejection of eggs. So over 40% of the eggs most of them are ejected and a few simply vanish. We never are able to find them. And then if the chicks that hatch, about 400 of them, only about 200 of these chicks make it to fledging. So that's about half, 40% of the chicks. That's a lot. Um, we figured initially, well, predators were getting to these chicks, right? But after seeing all the egg ejection, I was thinking, ah, no. Something else is going on, right? And... Um, there's something on that was going on. We decided to find out because I think you probably all have the same hypothesis that I had. They're getting at the chicks as well. And 
this chick loss pattern that we started seeing initially, you know, really turned on a light bulb in my head. And I said, well, they're, they're killing these chicks. So the chick loss pattern was very evident. So what we had was, first of all, they disappeared sequentially. So we'd go up one day and there'd be two chicks hatched. The next day, there'd only be one chick in the nest. And then maybe another one had hatched or the rest of the brood had hatched. So there'd be like two or three extra chicks. And the next day, another one had vanished. And so unless we had a very picky predator that was very controlled and wasn't sort of gorging himself on chicks and would every day go up and down and eat an extra chick, I thought that was probably not happening. So we had this sequential disappearance. All of this uh, happened usually within the first week of hatching when chicks are very uh, defenseless. So they fledge at around 13 days of age. And for the first four to five days, they really can't move around very much. So this is when things were really happening. Occasionally, we'd find a dead chick under the tree. And so it wasn't, it was, you know, the whole chick was there. So it hadn't been eaten by a predator. And in addition to that, what we also found was if we look closely at the dead chick, just as what I'm showing you here in that little circle, I'm not sure you can see the difference there in the skin, but it usually had either a thoracic or a head wound. This was just like a, a skin break. So we said, well, somebody is obviously getting rid of the chicks. And so we devised a plan to determine what was going on. The plan involved many uh, undergrads, <laughs> many graduate students, they were cheap. Um, I didn't have fancy equipment and so that was the way to do it. So we'd set up watching Sentinels people for 12 hours a day and um, watching the nests with binoculars because we didn't have um, you know, filming material to set up on these nests. And I was very lucky. My husband says we're all weird because um, I saw the first, the first uh, ever uh, evidence of infanticide, direct infanticide, and we were all cheering wildly and dancing around. You know, and my husband said you're all sick. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was a really interesting moment because we finally saw what I suspected had been happening for a number of years, and the way that the the infanticide usually happens. Oops, not thank you. Hang on. You go straight to the end. You leave you guys hanging there without the answer. <laughs> okay. I, I guess I must have hit the wrong button here. Here. Okay. So, I should wear my glasses when I do this, right? Okay. Yeah, because the end button is right below the down button. <laughs> okay. So, um, the way this was happening is that we actually observed this 12 times, direct evidence, and then we had 95 other events where there was circumstantial evidence for this. But typically, the adult approached the nest, and this was an adult that I had banded, and so we could see that it was a group adult. It wasn't a strange bird that was arriving. It would pick the chick up by the neck, and we could see it flapping its little buds, its little wings, so it was alive. And it would either throw it right over the rim of the nest, a few times we saw that, but usually it carried the chick off. And then we'd run after this bird, <laughs> you know, tripping over the vegetation with the binoculars and running, trying to see where it was going. And so what we saw on several occasions, it'd fly and it'd go to the ground, then it would peck at the chick, pick it up again, fly another 15, 20 meters, beat it up a little bit more, and so on, until it finally left it. And usually it was dead, so it did not eat the chick. And so this uh, immediately led us to the conclusion that this wasn't a hungry bird, uh, you know, instance of, of just hunger. It wasn't that. They were not cannibalizing these chicks. 
So we uh, started thinking about other possibilities, right, of why are these birds killing these chicks? And several other things that led us to what we think might be the answer. First of all, in all of the times that we saw this, the infanticides were perpetrated by group members. So it was a, an inside job, so to speak. <laughs> um, no cannibalism, so it was not a, a source of protein for these birds. The other interesting thing is that we found with this uh, yolk protein electrophoresis and then later with the genetic analyses that some birds in the group do not get to breed. So they don't breed in the breeding season or with several uh, repeated events. They're excluded from breeding. And finally, one last little bit of evidence is that these nestings that are aborted, that is either all of the eggs are ejected or whether then, or if some chicks uh, hatch, they're also eliminated through the infanticide. What happens is these groups nest much faster at about half the amount of time that they normally do if one chick survives. For example, and the group has to care for that chick. So what we think is happening is that a part of um, sort of, it's a sexual selection explanation actually. These birds are eliminating the chicks so that they themselves get a chance to breed within the group. So it's one mechanism of trying to rush things up if they've been excluded from breeding. We do have the data to look for this and I have it and I've had it for years now and I haven't gotten to it because of all those meetings and stuff <laughs> and other things, but things just, you know, I have to do it. But because we do have one of the key things that would be important to find is whether the individual who is committing infanticide uh, has any chicks in the brood actually. That would be one way to reject this hypothesis. So we have about eight or nine um, of uh, events that we actually have that information. So I have to get to it. The other uh, aspect that is interesting for these birds that we were able to develop has to do with the genetic pedigrees of these groups, and they are very complex. I, I like I like messy stuff. Um, the mating system for this species is incredibly varied uh, among groups, and so for 46% of the, the nests that we analyze, we have uh, polygenandry, meaning some birds are polygynous within the group, um, some other birds are polyandrous, so it's mixed. We have 28% of uh, the groups were monogamous, so only paired individuals, so no evidence of polygyny or polyandry. We have 15% of the groups where we only found polygyny, mixed with monogamy, so we had like maybe a couple of paired birds and then one male with several females or we had polyandry in about 10% of the group. So it is very, very flexible. It's a type of mating system that uh, all degrees of flexibility uh, are included. There's also a very high asymmetry and relatedness within the groups, meaning uh, what we were looking for was something like maybe the acorn woodpeckers where we would find a group of brothers perhaps mated with a group of sisters, which is something that occurs. But we didn't find that. We found that in some groups, individuals were highly related, so perhaps brothers and so on. And in other groups, there was very low relatedness among individual members. So one of the things that we think is interesting to, to determine, and this is another hypothesis, which can also be tested with uh, the data that I have, um, is that perhaps the level of kinship is a key factor that would determine uh, the degree of cooperation and the degree of antisocial behavior. Because perhaps the more uh, closely related individuals in the groups are, the less apt they would be uh, to commit infanticide, for example, because they'd be reducing their own uh, fitness. Okay, so I'm done with the weird cuckoos for now. <laughs> yeah, you want to?
I think it's how early they're able to get to it, actually. And also because once an individual starts laying their own eggs, if they can't identify and they might still have a chance of laying eggs. They stay, They can't identify uh, their own eggs from somebody else's eggs. They probably quit ejection. So let's say if you're the last one to lay eggs, if you're a group of four, everybody else is laying, well, you can freely throw out everybody's eggs, right, until you get to your own clutch, and then you have to stop if you can't identify your own egg as being separate from the rest. Yes. Yes, I think the newness of the egg is very evident. So within 24, a 24 hours after the egg is laid, it fades a bit. And it also gets dirty in the nest. But w when it's newly laid, I think everybody in the group will know, hey, somebody laid an egg. <laughs> so that might be one factor that we didn't compute together with the other ones, how fresh the, the egg is, because we w wouldn't be able to determine that exactly. But it's very obvious to us as human, you know, observers that uh, an egg is new so but uh, anyway you can also ask later about the guir cuckoo I'm going to move on to the, uh, the second species that I want to tell you a little bit about which are these beautiful uh, woodpeckers they're terrestrial woodpeckers um, and what's so fascinating about these well they also show cooperation but they have other unusual aspects that we didn't search for we didn't look for in the guir cuckoo and I want to tell you a little bit about those I've also had a collaborator, one collaborator for this study with a guy called Mike Webster from Cornell University, who's a really great friend, and he's there hugging my dog, which is also called Mike. Um, <laughs> this was a very uh, strange event in my house, and he met the dog, he loves dogs, and he hugged the dog, and he goes, what's the dog's name, Regina? And I'm like, I wasn't, you know, how could I say Mike to Mike? You know, I felt embarrassed, and then this friend goes, Mike, and he goes, what? And she goes, Mike, it's the dog's name, Mike. <laughs> it took a few minutes for that to filter into his head. But anyway, he still loved my dog, and he was okay with me. But, um, and these are the two students that worked on this project in particular, Rafael and Deborah. So the campo flickers um, that they're called, they're uh, throughout uh, most of South America, but they're endemic to savanna habitat, so you won't find them in the forests. And they're also co-optive breeders, like I said, and their main food are termites and ants. So that's why they're mostly on the ground. And they have one interesting facet in our area, which is they maintain a territory year-round. So they're in their territory all year. Contrary to the guiacucus that only stay during the rainy period, they come back each year to their own territory, but they don't hang out there all year, whereas these do. So they defend this territory all year round, and they nest most of the time in termite mounds, which is what you can see here, that, that big column there, um, which is nice because they can live in the same place where they eat, which is also wonderful. Um, and they're facultative cooperative breeders, so we will find them as pairs as well. I'm going to show you the results of this a lot quicker because uh, I want to focus on the third species a bit more. But they also have very flexible mating systems and very uh, variable breeding patterns. So of the nests that we found and that we monitored, we had 21 nests that were uh, monogamous pairs uh, without any helpers. So they were doing everything themselves, just a pair. And of these, um, we found no genetic evidence for extra pair paternity. So these chicks that hatched for these nests, were all of the, the chicks were the, the pair 
except for two cases of what we have uh, called quasi-parasitism. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Um, for birds, it happens occasionally, and it's the case where the chick that hatches, it belongs to the father in that nest, but not to the mother. And how that happens is the interesting thing. What we think is the father goes off, the social father here, so I divide between genetic father and the social father. The, the social father goes off, he mates with another female, and either she follows him back to the nest and deposits her egg there, or he shows her the way so that she can lay her egg in his nest. So that's why we call it quasi-parasitism, because it's not complete parasitism. It's only parasitizing the social mother in the case. And for the... Um, the other 12 nests, these were cooperative uh, breeders, meaning that they had more than two individuals in the nest and doing things. But what form of this cooperation took place is what is interesting. So we had one case in the nest where we had polygenandry. So we had both, within the group, we had both a male that made it with more than one female as well as females that made it with more than one male. Then we had five nests where we had polygyny with joint nests, meaning this uh, there was a male that made it with more than one female, and these females all laid their egg in this nest, the same nest. And we also, for these nests, we always had a dominant female. So it's sort of like the harem leader, you know. She was the one who, who to whom the, the chicks belonged, a, a large portion of them, from between 50 to 70% of the nestlings always belonged to this dominant female. And then we also had cooperative breeding in the form of monogamy with helpers. So these individuals uh, did not, the helpers did not lay any eggs and did not have any chicks, but they helped the pair to breed. So these are the forms that cooperative breeding can have in this species. So we were looking for advantages for cooperative breeding. Why are these birds breeding in this form when they have the option of breeding uh, in a non-cooperative form? So we looked for obvious things, and here we looked for the number of chicks hatched, and you can see the blue bar versus the gray bar, the blue bars for the pairs versus the groups and the gray bars for the number of chicks hatched, and we didn't find any uh, statistical difference there. And we also didn't find a statistical difference for uh, nest success, meaning whether the nest produced at least one uh, fledging, let's say, just one. And that was what defined nest success for us. So it wasn't something obvious uh, about cooperative breeding. The advantages that we found for cooperative breeding were more subtle than that. And what I show here is the difference between the non-assisted pairs, those are just uh, monogamous breeders without any helpers, and individual or monogamous breeders with helpers on the other uh, case. So we have the comparison there. So we found basically that those breeders that weren't helped, they were, they were non-assistant, they just worked harder. So this is both the case for the number of visits, which is in the top graph. So you can see on the left-hand side is the non-assisted uh, pairs. They visited the nest more frequently than did the, the, the breeders for the uh, assisted pairs. And they also spent more time uh, within the nest when they didn't have any help than those birds that did have help. So what this means is, okay, it might be advantageous for the breeders themselves in terms of how much uh, their energy expenditure, the work that they, they do uh, to bring up these nestlings. And the, um, also this was a very strange finding. I'm still not sure how to interpret it because we also found that the breeders uh, increased their feeding effort to the chicks when they had helpers. As the helpers fed more, so did they 
which I'm, if you all have any suggestions about how to interpret this, if I had babysitters, I would probably, you know, not increase my effort as they increase theirs. But anyway, I'm not really sure what to think about this. Um, but these, uh, these combined efforts of perhaps feeding more, both by the helpers and by the, the pairs that were breeding, these actually resulted, these efforts resulted in having more fledglings in assisted pair uh, nests. So there was an advantage here in the production of nestlings itself, which why, might be why cooperative breeding in this species would be of interest. And the other interesting finding, I think this is probably the most, of, uh, most interesting of all of the findings, is that helpers um, are not indiscriminate in how they help. So what we found is that as helpers are more genetically related to the individuals that are breeding, they also help more. And so this ties back to the guiokuku thing about kinship being an important determinant of how individuals behave. So if these individuals are actually related to the nestlings indirectly, perhaps uh, their brothers or sisters or whatever of the breeding pair, they will choose to do more helping. Okay, so the last one. So these are my favorite right now for a while. Um, Blue-black grass squits, okay? So what's so special about these little birds, right? Because they're pretty nondescript. If you looked at the first initial slide of all the colorful birds and so on, they're tiny little black birds. But I've, I'm pretty much fascinated with these little birds at the moment. And I've had several collaborators, because this has been ongoing for like about 10 to 11 years now, um, and different questions that have come up through the years. Um, I collaborate with the two tallest Jeffs in the world. <laughs> So just you can get an idea of uh, the tallness of these two people. And Jeff Graves is actually taller than the guy here on the left. Imagine that. So um, Jeff Potos, who's in Massachusetts, University of Massachusetts, Jeff Graves in University of uh, St. Andrews. I had one collaborator for a couple of years in my university, Sonia, and one guy in Portugal, Rui Oliveira. So students through the years have never lacked um, they're all always coming to the lab they love behavior it's a wonderful thing to attract students so I'm not going to name them all but, but for what I'm going to be showing you I actually want to uh, include the three students who did the work that I'm going to be showing you Roberto, Luisa and Rafael going to be showing one particular aspect of this study species. So a bit of background about these birds, of why I find them so fascinating before I get to the, the study results that I'm going to show you. They're a tropical, a neotropical species, not a tropical, neotropical species that are very abundant, and I love abundant animals to work with behavior. Um, they're very conspicuous, which also helps quite a lot. Um, but they also represent, at the same time, an unknown paradigm to me in many ways because of their unusual mating system, and, and I'll show you that. They also have very elaborate um, secondary sexual characters and also certain aspects of their ecology, which I find pretty fascinating. Very common in Brazil, and people always ask, why do you work with these trash birds? And I'm like, well, I don't try to explain it. It doesn't matter. Um, they're in open area, so you won't find them in um, forests, which is good because I live in a savanna, so it's, uh, I wouldn't find these birds if I lived in a forest. And they're only there in Brasilia in uh, the rainy season. So they migrate away, probably to the Amazon, which is what I've heard, but we don't know for sure. They also very sexually dimorphic during the breeding period. So the female shown on top is very cryptic. Uh, the male acquires a nuptial plumage, which is black and iridescent. 
Um, so just before breeding, he starts acquiring this plumage. And the thing that attracted them to me the first time was because I was interested in cooperation and in social behavior and so on. And these birds, they always aggregate in clusters when they breed. And when you look out in the field where they're breeding in the beginning of the breeding season and they start displaying, which I'll show you in a minute, it's sort of like looking at black popcorn, you know, they're just popping up and down doing their little displays. And for a while I thought, well, this is a lek. Everybody knows what a lek is? Biology students? Or, well, I thought it was a lek to begin with. And then, of course, I found evidence in, that it wasn't. And um, they're actually socially monogamous. Um, so they each have their little territory, male and female, but these territories are all clustered together and they can be extremely small. So one of these territories can be maybe 10 or 12 meters across, and that's it. So you're here, and there's a male displaying over there by that rail. So that's how small their territories can be. They can be a little bit larger, too. But they do have biparental care, so the males help to care for the nestlings, which obviously immediately I rejected the, the, the lecking uh, possibility. And like most tropical birds, they're subject, especially those that you know nest close to the ground, they're subjected to enormous predation. So Sometimes over 80% of the nests are predated. So we, uh, for the first two or three seasons, we did all sorts of natural history stuff. And then we started looking at other things that I thought might be interesting. And immediately, of course, I wanted to look at the genetics of the, uh, the breeding behavior. And so for two field seasons, we had a very small sample of uh, 31 adults and 20 chicks that came from 11 nests from these adults. And we extracted the DNA and did the primers, developed the primers, and what we found was like the tip of the iceberg, which immediately made you know, my, my eyes shine, and I was very happy about this whole thing. Um, so 10 chicks from seven nests were not related to their social parents. Um, and I thought that very unusual for a, you know, uh, a socially monogamous uh, bird. It's just, uh, I know we know that social monogamy isn't the rule, but it doesn't have to be to this extreme. So I was uh, pretty amazed. And so in seven of these cases, we found that the chicks were not related to the social father. Um, in two cases, they were not related to the social mother. So that is the quasi-parasitism that I described to you before. And in one of these cases, the chick was not related to either the father or the mother. So this was true parasitism, you know, coming in and laying the egg in a stranger's nest. And then we devised, this was to the amusement of everybody in my lab, we devised a classification of these patterns. But remember, this is a very, very small sample. Since then, we've you know, increased the sample um, tenfold. So we had one case where we called the saint. This is a, a little male bird that had only its own chicks uh, in its nest. And we knew of no other activities. So we called them the saint. Then we had two cases of complete cuckold. <laughs> he was feeding only illegitimate chicks in his nest. And so these chicks can have up to three eggs and three chicks, and I mean, these birds can have up to three chicks in their nests, and not more than that. Complete cuckolds, two of them. We had one which was a partial cuckold, which had zone chicks in the nest, also legitimate chicks in the nest. We had two astute birds, which we called them this way for obvious reason. They had only their own chicks in the nest, but they managed to get their own chicks in somebody else's nest. <laughs> and <laughs> we also had a combined um, two nests where we had individuals had their own chicks, they had illegitimate chicks in their nest, and they also managed to get some chicks in somebody else's <laughs> nest. So <laughs> we had as like a complete, um, incredible array of 
breeding behaviors, actually, or breeding strategies, if you'd like to call them that way. But um, very, very um, flexible, I'd say. And this is why we've been looking at this bird ever since. Um, the other thing about them, which would immediately lead us to suspect that their genetic mating system is, does not coincide with their social breeding system, is the fact that they have pretty flashy uh, sexual ornaments for a little nondescript black bird, actually. And their wild dances, like I call them, and their elaborate costumes, which is the nuptial plumage. So they have this nuptial plumage, which is iridescent. It, um, it reflects in the UV, uh, which is one type of ornament. And they have these white underwing patches, and they also have a very elaborate display, which I'll show to you in a minute, which is a vertical flight display, combined with a song. So obviously they invest a lot in sexual advertisements, so that would lead us immediately to suspect that something else is going on, that it's not a genetically uh, monogamous system, just by looking at these uh, characteristics. So if you go out in the field and you look at these little birds, what is it that they're doing? What does it look like? So I'm going to show you their display. And it's less than half a second. And they vocalize while they do this, um, this leap. So if you pay attention, a lot of attention, try to count how many wing beats they're doing in a half a second. So, what do you think? How many wing beats? So what are they doing? The females see this, and I'll bet you they can, they know. <laughs> I'll bet you they know. Ah, so for a number of years we didn't have the, the technological capacity. This is why I get uh, rich collaborators. <laughs> well, no, they're also very, very good collaborators in many other ways. but um. They have to be interested in what I what I do, right? So yes, we eventually got the the cameras to be able to do this to look because I wanted to know what is it that females really might be evaluating. So you you don't nobody wants to guess what they're flapping their wings, how many times they're flapping their wings. So let me show you this. It's just so beautiful. It's like an acrobatic ballet dance. I'll bet you it's really hard to do, you know? Um, so if you'll, I'll play this again, and you try to know that we've, obviously we've exacted, uh, looked at this in many, many perspectives and measured it in so many different ways, the height of the leap. We also measure the rotation angle that they do. So I'll play it again. You'll notice how they rotate their bodies in a, you know, in a, an angle toward the ground. They exhibit the white plumage beneath their, um, their wings. We also know now, we, we studied this, we looked at this, we know that they leap more frequently when they have the sunlight right on their bodies. So they do it to show off their iridescent plumage. But um, the interesting thing too to notice is that when they do this flight pattern, for the first few times that they're beating their wings, they're actually getting propulsion to go upward. So they're beating their wings just from midway position down to go up. And then when they get to the peak of the leap, they do something else. They start clapping their wings behind their back. And they do this, there's a sound that comes out of this uh, motion. So it's um, really faster there. So it's going to gain propulsion by pushing the air down to begin with, see? And then it starts doing it slowly and, and whipping the wings back. 
So this is another fascinating angle of, of these birds for me, the ornaments and how females can extract information from this type of display and what's going on. I wanted to show you something else, but this is just a basic description of why um, these birds are so fascinating to me. But there are other angles that we also wanted to find out about, and one of them has to do with uh, part of the physiology of these birds that has to do with the ornaments. So the physiological uh, study of, of tropical birds, it's really it's in its infancy in, in the tropics in general, but in Brazil as well. There are very few studies, and they show some patterns that are very different from uh, temperate regions for birds. First of all, males do not exhibit very high levels of testosterone. Uh, even in the breeding period, it's more reduced than what we find, for example, here in Alaska or in, in temperate regions. The effect that they maintain a territory year-round might influence this because it might be really lethal to have very high levels of testosterone year-round for these birds. And some of them also have very long-term um, pair bonds. So it you know, might not be a good idea to have very high levels of testosterone all year. But what we wanted to do in this particular study that I'll show you the results is to find out um, how prolonged social experience might affect um, some physiological aspects and some of the ornaments of these birds. So we wanted to look at uh, aggressive behavior of the males, uh, male testosterone levels, and also this pale, uh, the male plumage ornamentation and see how all of these might be tied together. So we had uh, an experiment that we ran for 12 months, and we had um, them in outside aviaries like you see here. We had three treatments for the males. One of the treatments, the males were maintained in an all-male uh, situation, so they only interacted with other males. In the second treatment, they were mixed, so there were males and females. And in the third treatment, they only uh, experienced a pair bond situation, so they had a female with them. So for each of these treatments, we had three replicates. So on this first left-hand column, you see the six individuals that were maintained together and three replicates of that. And then the mix, there were three males and three females. And in the paired, one male with one female. So we had the three replicates of that. Um, so what did we expect? Now, this is our, our previous uh, expectation. We expected that the males in the all-males uh, group would be pretty aggressive, and they also have high T levels, but no conspicuous um, ornaments. And that's because males are males, right? <laughs> Put them together. They're going to be uh, perhaps a little aggressive and so on. But we expected a lot more aggression in a situation where females would also be available because they represent a resource, and we'd figure that these males would be competing for access or to monopolize these females. So we expected even more aggression in this treatment, even higher T levels and higher, uh, you know, just conspicuous ornamentation if they were trying to attract these females. And finally, for the paired situation, we just thought there would be a lot lower aggression, lower T levels, and um, lower plumage ornaments in general. So what we did is we measured every month uh, the T, um, the testosterone for the males. Uh, we also paired them up over uh, a food resource after they'd been 12 hours without food overnight and, and looked for how they uh, competed for access to the food. Uh, we also looked at the molting pattern of the plumage. This is one of the ornaments. So it's, if it's uh, interacting with testosterone levels, we also wanted to see what pattern we could uh, determine from that. We also looked at the spectral properties of the plumage because we know that these birds, uh, the plumage reflects in the UV uh, spectrum. And so we thought this as an ornament also would be indicative of uh, the sexual selection, the strength of sexual selection. So 
when we looked at the uh, treatment here, the, the interactions for aggression among males, in the left-hand side you have the treatment for males only compared to the treatment for the mixed uh, individuals that were mixed in with females. And to our surprise, we found that males that were only with males consistently showed higher aggression levels than males that had been interacting with females. So this we did every month, and so this uh, difference was pretty significant. We also found when we looked through the years that the pattern of, of T levels varied quite differently, basically between the all males treatment and the treatments that had the mixed individuals together with the females and the paired. So what you see here on the x-axis is the months and the boxed part is where, the, where reproduction occurs for these birds. Obviously they were in aviaries but they still respond to the environmental cues. So what we found is that for the all males treatment, which is the one on top, we had uh, the testosterone rising very, very quickly right at the beginning of the breeding season. It rose to a higher level than in the other two treatments. Um, they had two peaks and then an abrupt decline. And this is very different from what we saw for the both the mixed and the paired birds, which were more similar to each other, which was also surprising. But what we found is that they showed a very gradual increase in testosterone and in lower peaks. And so the all males uh, treatment obviously was different from the other two. How about plumage, right? Um, did the molting differ among these treatments? And we found that yes, uh, it did. For the treatment that had only males, again, you'll see that is the black line running on top. They had a higher plumage uh, coverage, all in black, and it had an earlier peak than the other two treatments. So obviously this is going hand in hand with, with the testosterone. And whether the plumage color differed or not between the treatments, again, yes. And here the one that differed was the fact that the males that were paired with the females did not exhibit um, the, the UV chroma. What we found is they had blue chroma, so they were bluer, whereas the other males that were interacting with other males and with the females, they had the UV expression. So this was the other one. So in all, what this, uh, this experiment showed us is that these components uh, really influence each other in a way. So the social environment, whether males are just with other males or mixed with females or in pairs, really is an influential factor that will modify testosterone uh, production, the aggressive behavior, and the plumage ornamentation. So it's a very dynamic sort of interaction. And to me, anyway, what this showed is that social context is really a crucial factor in the expression of these ornaments. Um, but I think the more surprising part of it had to do with this fact that males that were competing just with each other and not necessarily for the axis of females um, really had some um, more some stronger uh, expression of certain things, such as the higher level of testosterone, just in the male-male context. Um, also, this faster coverage of their nuptial plumage, um, and I, and with longer maintenance of the plumage, I um, believe that the that females were the primary uh, instigators, let's say, uh, of these types of, of expressions, especially the ornaments. So if a male is trying to captivate a female, to attract the female, they should be showing these ornaments. Well, it seems to me that these ornaments may be just as important in at least certain species, obviously, to show to other males hey, look, look at how good I am, you know, for whatever reasons. But um, I, I, I somehow didn't expect this uh, difference to, to be happening. Um, 
in, in, even in, in characteristics that are not necessarily related to aggressive interactions, such, such as the, the UV uh, shifted plumage. So um, what I hope I've shown you here, and I just, you know, I didn't want to kill you and, and go through a lot, a lot of stuff, because I know it's not easy to sit and just listen to somebody talking away, but to show you uh, little bits and pieces of these puzzles that we try to put together for the different behaviors and um, in sexual selection, cooperative breeding of different species. We work with several other species, but these three have been um, key components in, in my lab for a few years now. And that is it for now. And thank you very much for listening. If, if you have any questions, I'll be more than happy to, to answer. Thank you. Yeah, we use only a testosterone for that. We have pretty limited access sometimes to, uh, we did it in collaboration with Julio Oliveira, the Portuguese guy that I showed here. Um, so my lab is truly a field lab, right? It's mostly field work. If I didn't have these collaborations, I probably wouldn't be able to do the genetics or the physiology associated with it. Um, and I have to do it outside of Brazil most of the time. I. I feel, so it's limited in some ways, but it would be interesting to look at some of the other things that might uh, be coming out of this, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. No, we do. We do ban the males. The reason why we got into the electro, maybe that's what you're asking about. Why do we do the maternal analyses like that? Yeah, we can't, not through the eggs. We don't, we can't get to the paternal part of it unless we incubated the eggs, of course. And we wanted to know for the females. For the paternal part of it, we do collect the blood, but for, for the chicks once they hatch. The problem is we never get as many chicks as we would like when we want to see the whole picture because they get ejected. And then the problem with if we wait longer, we, we draw blood of as many chicks as we can, but they also get killed very quickly. So that limited how much we could do with that part of it. No, they do stick around. They help to defend the, the nests and the nestlings and so on, yes. Usually you find, um, pretty much of the time, you do find an even number of birds. And if you look at them just behaviorally, they seem to be paired up. So you'll get like eight birds. And before, before we did this with these birds, there had been previous publications, not about the guiacucu, uh, but about related birds that have this type of breeding. And people would tend to think that they were monogamous because in the field when you look at them they walk around in pairs but once you start doing these analyses it becomes clear that you know yes uh-huh 
Um, I think so. One of the bigger problems, and again, why we ended up doing the, the egg yolk analyses is that it's very hard to capture females. It's not hard to capture the males because the males, we take the lure birds, we put them in a cage within a larger cage, and all the males come and attack. But the few females that we're able to get, we have to get through uh, mist netting, which is very inefficient with these birds. And so we ended up with a sample that is completely distorted with a lot of males and very few females. So that's part of the problem of how, and why we ended up, you know, getting to this other technique to be able to determine maternity, so, yeah. When they were doing the interactions, this is for the for the last uh, species, right? They had to be taken very quickly, so within two to three minutes. So they were in a naviary doing the, the experiments within a cage, and so as soon as the interactions happened, we'd be sampling the blood. It, it does change very quickly, but I hope that, you know, because of the consistency and the repeated number of times that this was done, that these distortions were, if there were distortions, that they were taken into, into consideration, but yeah. Yeah, it's a problem if you're going to take the birds from the net and then do something. But if they're in cage situation, we could get to them pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. We, well, we do know, okay, we do know. It's not, not that easy a question. It's really interesting because it's almost like a parasitism situation where it's like she's laying an egg there at the end of the, of the clutch. And because these are cuckoos, you can imagine that, you know, the several alternative possibilities may exist. We have found um, cases of a female that's laying an egg in one nest, and at the same time we found evidence of her having visited some other nest not too far away but far away enough to know that she was not a member of both groups, probably. Or if she was, she was doing a lot of flying around. Um, so we found evidence of that type of behavior as well. But let's say not in such a huge amount that we think it's a, a you know, prevalent type of pattern. It, it might happen sometimes, maybe a female's transitioning from one group to the other. And um, yeah, but they are parasites potentially, you know. So. Um, I don't know. I know we have evidence of birds that lived for as long as about seven or eight years, but these are birds that we recaptured, right? Um, I think the longest that we have is about eight years. Well, only from indirect observations because we didn't monitor a large enough size of the population to be able to tell. But I do know that nowadays I'd never be able to do this same study in the area that I did because they virtually vanished from um, the region where we work. Because when I worked there, it was uh, truly uh, very little, very little uh, urbanized. And, and so they, they live in a lot in gardens and lawns and so on. But there's so many people now in these areas that we used to work that, you know, they're, they're infrequent. So, yeah, it's obviously declining, this population in particular. But they're not, they're not um, threatened or anything like that. They're, they're more or less common bird, but just obviously don't like such a highly populated place as it's become. So...
or make them desert. They've ne they never deserted uh, nests that we messed around with, and we messed around with them a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> Uh, I didn't even tell some of the things that, for example, that we did to do some of these, the maternal analyses. I didn't even tell you that, I don't think. We substituted the eggs. Um, we would take the eggs out of the nest, but to keep them laying, we would insert plaster eggs that are, look just like these. They're, we really uh, became very you know, artistic. <laughs> and they're the same weight, and we'd insert these eggs in and take the eggs out, as well as the ones that they managed to eject. And they continued with their same patterns of behavior. They ejected these these plaster eggs. They also incubated them until we'd let, we let them incubate them for the same amount of period, and then we'd take them all out because we needed the eggs to do the maternal analyses at this point. We did this for three years. I think it was three years. Um, and the other thing is that when we climbed to the nest and uh, just do things, they weren't frightened really of us. I mean, they would come right up like a meter away. We'd, we'd be more frightened of them than I think they were of us because they were screeching their head off and they never actually pecked us, but you know they weren't afraid. And uh, no, they never deserted the the nest, uh, which isn't true for all species. I know there are species that if you just come within, and the, I think the biggest problem isn't just they'll desert because we were there, but that predators will find the nest more quickly because we were there. That is a real problem, especially in the savanna when you approach a nest and you're looking, you know you'll predators often will will watch you and so they'll other birds that are predators so yeah Okay, so I, I never know. They didn't transition from one group to the next. These were three uh, complete. That would be an interesting follow-up, actually, right, to see what happens once they transition and if their T levels fall. We never did that part of it, which would, would have been interesting. So they were kept separate the entire time for the whole year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, to, to really find out whether, you know, now they can decrease the amount of testosterone because they don't need to express all of these behaviors and so on. That would be, yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah? You mentioned specifics for breeds, um, which is very No, we have them in an aviary. We, we do have a separate aviary we keep all the time. Um, and they're mixed in this aviary. I keep them there as a stock. And, you know, they they sometimes will nest and they'll lay eggs, but we've never had a chick surviving uh, very long, maybe three or four days. But we've never also made an attempt to actually invest in, in them breeding in captivity. Though, you know, that would be very nice for several other experiments, just very hard to do. Yes, it would be very, very nice. I have a student now, a master's student, she's trying to come into the master's program, who I've decided to have her focus on what are the, the conditions that we'd be able to actually have these birds breeding. They're not like um, zebra finches, you know, that breed their heads off whenever they have the opportunity. Um, they do not work that way, unfortunately. So they probably have to have very special food requirements, and it would be cool to be able to, to look at some of these things, yeah. Whoever, yeah, thank you. For the group, for the Guiacucus. 
No, um, they pretty much maintain their s the same groups through the breeding season, but from breeding season to breeding season, yes. Sometimes some members drop off, some other, and well, what we see is sometimes the, okay, let me modify that answer, because the birds that hatch within the group will hang around for a while with their parents, so that's an increase in the group, obviously. But once they, they you know, acquire a certain age, they go off, they disperse, and so sometimes we don't even see those birds again. Um, and the same group is maintained through a number of years, sometimes three, four years, you see the same basic group in the same territory. So they leave the territory at the end of the rainy season and then they return to the same territory. So, yeah. But Yeah, well, these, the Greer cuckoos, you mean? The Greer cuckoos. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're um, the whole uh, subfamily, the Crotophagini, they're all, they all have the same pattern of behavior. So it's pretty much genetically determined. What I think is more variable probably is the social structure of the group itself and how this genetic uh, relations among members of the group might determine some of their behaviors. But the fact that they're communal, they nest together, I think that's pretty determined by, you know, the whole genetic a basis of the species. I don't think that is variable. Because I think the other, well, the other species that belong to this subfamily, there are three cousins, let's say, of the Guiacucu, the Anis. So there's smooth-billed Ani, the, the, what is it in, in English, the rough bit, the groove-billed Ani, um, and the major, the, the, the larger Ani. We have um, two of those species in Brazil. They all have the same uh, cooperative breeding pattern, communal breeding pattern, yeah varies in other things, but it's pretty set. So, <laughs> yep. Hmm? Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for giving a talk to us. Well, thank you for coming. It's fun.